Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene. Uh, we're back, and uh, my guest today is uh, Natasha Deegan. She's an author and a professor and chair of art market studies at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And we're going to talk about her book, Merchants of Style, Art and Fashion After Warhol, uh, which I found very illuminating. And of course, it is about, I would say, uh, an uneasy symbiosis uh, between art and the fashion. So uh, welcome, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. So... Uh, Tell us uh, a bit about yourself, about what you do, and how you got interested in this topic of intersection of uh, art and fashion. So yeah, as, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at FIT, but um, despite that, I uh, teach on a course, a master's course called Art Market Studies, and my background is in art history and specifically in the history of the art market, so kind of art and economics. Um, but uh, even before joining FIT, I had become really interested in what I saw as like just these proliferating points of intersection between art and fashion. It seemed like every year there were more runway shows being held at art galleries and art museums. There were more artist brand collaborations. Um, you know, you started to see a lot of the same kind of architects work on museums and then retail spaces. And so... Uh, whereas like when I first started at FIT, I felt like people just automatically assumed I was teaching fashion and I would kind of bristle at that and be like very stroppy saying, no, I do something very different and it's not fashion. Uh, I started to lean into it and think like, actually there's, there's enough here to write a book, especially because it seemed like there were a lot of media mentions, a lot of press articles about all of these, you know, new initiatives or collaborations or exhibitions. Um, but nobody was really connecting the dots. I felt like there was nothing really looking at the phenomenon, this accelerating convergence between art and fashion from a critical lens. It was all just promotional pretty much. And so I felt mm -hmm. like there was a contribution to be made, something, you know, and in writing the book, I thought, okay, I need to kind of try and both document this phenomenon, but also really understand what were the circumstances that led to this and, you know, what does it mean for both art and for fashion? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think certainly the book does that. Um, and I love how you went about it. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit how you, how you structured the book and, you know, um, yeah, whether it's the book's structure and why you decided to do it. <laughs> well, I will say that I started working on the book in late 2019. And when the pandemic hit, I was like going to the Mets archive and the Guggenheim's archive. I was doing a lot of research into these fashion exhibitions that had taken place at art museums. And then the pandemic happened and it's like, okay, no more <laughs> libraries and archives. So uh, this book that was, you know, probably going to be something quite different, actually ended up being, I would say, more 
like cultural criticism. And actually, the mm. more I wrote the book, the more I felt like I had a point of view. And the book became a little bit more polemical, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to, um, you know, the more work I did on it, I wanted to cover what I saw as being the full range of uh, manifestations of this blurring of boundaries between art and fashion. So I kind of divided up the book into two parts and I call it people and places, but basically one is kind of more about the individuals in the, um, you know, art world and fashion industry. And then the second half is about more institutions. So, uh, there are six chapters in the book and the first one is about artist brand collaborations. The second is about, um, sort of the overlap in language between, you know, art and fashion. So the fact that we talk about minimalist fashion that obviously is taken from the idea of minimalist art or deconstruction mm -hmm. in fashion. Um, so kind of looking at the shared vocabulary, uh, you know, designers who are using the vocabulary of art and vice versa artists who are interested in using kind of fashion as their medium. Uh, then chapter three is on something that I called art pop. And I guess we'll probably talk more about that later. So a little teaser. Um, and then the second half of the book just looks at different institutions. So the first is looking at the museum. Uh, that's chapter four. Chapter five is looking at what I call the new luxury patrons. So the fact that we have all these museums and foundations that are being founded by fashion businesses and luxury conglomerates. Uh, you know, why are they doing that? And, and what is that all about? And then the last chapter of the book is looking at the parallels between the art gallery and the kind of luxury retail flagship um, and talking about how in mm -hmm. many ways the two have really converged, that they're looking more and more similar. And the retail experience for both not only feels very similar, but has similar aims. So that's kind of the overview of the book. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I found this constru construction uh, quite illuminating, and yeah, I think it's very well done. I, and I like some uh, parallels that you've drawn that I haven't drawn myself, and I thought, oh, this was quite interesting, and we'll, we, we're going to certainly dive into those. Uh, and you you start the book with Enzi Warhol, uh, even though, you know, art and Fashion has had some, you know, obviously they have intersected before, uh, you know, with, I mean, starting from Charles Frederick Worth could be sort of seen as the father of uh, modern fashion, of course, uh, Paul Flores, Chiaparelli, et cetera. So can you sketch out, you know, a little bit sort of the about, uh, those intersections and what makes Warhol uh a pivotal figure in the relationship between art and fashion. Yeah. So, I mean, I start the book in the late 19th century. Well, this is in the introduction. Most of the book is the period after Warhol. So the 80s, the 90s, the aughts to the present day. Uh, that's where really the body of the book focuses. But um, in the introduction, I do think it's important to kind of sketch out a history of this very long relationship between art and fashion. This is certainly nothing new um, in the sense that, you know, fashion has always seen an art, uh, uh, a, a, an avenue for greater prestige, um, for greater status. So, you know, I start in the late 19th century, which is uh, around the time where we see the birth of haute couture and also 
uh, industrialization and the two you know have a relationship um, where the the whole kind of profession of what it meant to be a couturier really you know changes and uh, the status of what it is to be a fashion designer really changes um, with worth who you mentioned and you know I found him to be a fascinating figure because he was very interested in art he was an avid art collector um, but he also really fashioned himself as an artist so there's mm-hmm. a very famous photograph of him uh, wearing like a black velvet beret and a fur trimmed coat and this look was supposedly inspired by um, a painting of Rembrandt so he's very deliberately cultivating the image of an artist. And then Mm -hmm. um, Paul Perret, you know, I think is quite different in that he really aligns himself with a more avant-garde aesthetic. He is very much in that social milieu. Um, He also enlists artists to design everything from his, you know, business stationery to, you know, he hires artists to do illustrations and textile design. Um, But, you know, he also very explicitly says, um, you know, I'm an artist, not a dressmaker. So mm-hmm. he's looking for the status. He's looking for uh, the, um, you know, the prestige, the the kind of aura of an artist rather than, you know, even using the term dressmaker kind of, you know, kind of denotes something that's both more female, that's more low status. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then through surrealism, which is a period that, you know, you can't talk about art and fashion without talking about someone like Elsa Schiaparelli and uh, the fact that, you know, you have a number of uh, uh, surrealist artists who are uh, taking an idea that maybe existed in a visual art context and translating it into a garment. Um, And there's just a very kind of fluid back and forth between art and fashion at that time. Uh, where you have, you know, Scaparelli uh, designing gloves based on a Picasso, you know, based on a Man Ray um, photograph that was in collaboration with Picasso, and then Picasso making a painting of, um, you know, uh, someone wearing a Scaparelli ensemble and gifting a painting to Scaparelli, who is a friend. And, you know, so there's this, there's this, again, shared social milieu, which, you know, continues, I think, to another point of inflection that I talk about in the book, which is the 60s, which is where kind of Warhol comes in as well. And then, too, there was, especially in the moment in the early 60s, uh, early on in Warhol's career when he's a real pioneer of pop art and he's part of this social milieu in New York where he's friends with Betsy Johnson. He's, uh, you know, uh, doing, showing his films at Paraphernalia, which was, you know, the fashion boutique that, um, she was involved with that also hosted, you know, performances by the Velvet Underground and was kind of considered to be this like continual happening. And so art and fashion are again, uh, very much entwined, but it's now being amplified by mass media in a totally different way. So you have, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Warhol's film serving as a backdrop to a fashion shoot that appears in Life magazine, or you have, you know, features in in Vogue about Warhol and the kind of like Warhol superstars and that whole scene. Um, And so, you know, uh, the kind of aesthetics of uh, Warhol and this kind of meeting point between art and fashion become very trendy, very uh, mainstream in a way. Uh, through mm-hmm. through the mass media. And that's something that I think is a little bit different. But, um, you know, I think in terms of Warhol's role in the phenomenon that I'm describing in the book, 
you know, Warhol has a very varied career. He starts off making, you know, he starts off actually as a fashion illustrator, even before he's known to be a fine artist. So this is before pop art in, you know, the 50s, for instance. Um, so he's creating advertisements and fashion illustrations. Um, and then he starts creating uh, paintings. So the very early pop paintings are done by hand. And then he starts using screen printing techniques, creating, you know, all the paintings that many people will be familiar with of Campbell's soup cans and Coca-Cola bottles and Marilyn and Liz Taylor and, mm -hmm. you know, all of the kind of uh, visual culture of American consumerism and celebrity culture. And then uh, in the late 60s, he shot. And he uh, gets kind of freaked out, uh, understandably, but also um, is very physically weak. And so his whole artistic practice and persona really changes from that point on. And it's in the 70s and 80s that he rebrands himself as what he calls a business artist. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he leaves the studio. So he had the Silver Factory uh, in the 60s, which was kind of a hangout, all these celebrities and kind of hangers on and weirdos and freaks kind of passing through. And there were a lot of like amphetamines and drug use and parties. And so he kind of abandons that whole part of his world. And he, you know, moves his studio into basically an office, uh, starts wearing Brooks Brothers uh, in the late <laughs> 70s. Uh, there's an amazing photograph of him and his like employees and they're all wearing these Brooks Brothers suits. Uh, so it's like it could not be any more dissimilar to like the Richard mm -hmm. Avedon photographs of him and all these kind of like weird people he was hanging out with in the 60s. Um, and so he, as a business artist, says that, you know, very explicitly in his book, The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, like business art is a step that comes after art. Making business is the best kind of art. And he you know, walks the walk. He starts collaborating with brands. He starts making advertisements for everything from, you know, furniture companies to, you know, so Sony audio tapes. Um, he starts making, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he runs, he founds and funds uh, Interview Magazine. Uh, he starts making TV shows, including a TV show in, in 1979 called Fashion, which he uh, envisioned to be a TV version of a fashion magazine. Um, so he gets very interested in this world of commerce, uh, but also of fashion. And um, he's, you know, um, involved in the world of commerce as his primary artistic media from that point on. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I can go on and on about it, but uh, maybe we can come <laughs> back to uh, the yeah, significance of all uh, that. No, I mean, thank you for articulating uh everything i detest about andy warhol so nicely <laughs> I, i've had so i mean i'm a on warhol i am 100 in the robert hughes camp i I, just, <laughs> I hate the guy and i hate everything he you know the way he debased art the way he debased culture the way he completely turned away um from you know from what from the meaning of art uh i think you know i, I don't know if it's what you meant to articulate <laughs> in your book but that's what that that's what it said to me and uh i do think he is absolutely i think it was spot on to make him as a pivotal figure 
uh, not only in art but in culture, uh, because you know he really was sort of the catalyst, I think, for you know what Robert Hughes wrote when he wrote mm. uh, that the art world became an art industry, and I you know I think fashion is absolutely has followed suit. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I well, okay, so I think like in terms of the book. I think I have, well, I tried to strike a, a kind of more ambivalent tone when it came to Warhol, because I agree that he's the catalyst. And, and certainly I put him as a central figure in the book because I see him as being responsible for a lot of what we're experiencing today. And a lot of these uh, more recent developments I, I'm very critical of, and I think are really bad for both art and for fashion. I think though, one thing maybe to say in his defense, kind of, is that you know Warhol, unlike some of the people today, never really made that much money from his commercial uh, enterprises. So you know mm. he he made uh, basically by the eighties he was making something like one to two million dollars a year uh, from his commissioned portraits, and that funded all of his other stuff. So Interview Magazine, mm -hmm. all of the things that he was doing that seemed very commercial were never very profitable. And so yeah. you know I think that's a big difference between what Warhol did himself. And, you know, when we look at some other examples, which maybe we'll touch on later, like both in the art world and the fashion world of people that have, you know, claimed that they're following in the footsteps of Warhol and that they're, mm -hmm. you know, in the same lineage, you know, I think with, for Warhol, there was genuine risk involved. Like he was really mm -hmm. by the eighties, he was really derided. Like people, you know, all of these kind of commercial things he was doing were really panned and ridiculed. Like he was on like the TV show, The Love Boat. People just thought he was a joke, you know, and um, mm -hmm. he was totally past his prime. He wasn't doing anything interesting. All of this commercial stuff was just super crass and kitschy. And, you know, so the one thing I will say about him is I think there was real risk. He was yeah. very um, much rejected by the world of art. Um in those years. And mm -hmm. I mean, it was really only a younger generation of artists who saw him as an inspiration. It was like the kind yeah. of Basquiat, Keith Haring generation that saw him as someone to model themselves after or emulate. I think uh, people of his own generation just thought he, you know, had totally, you know, jumped the shark. He was a joke. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I think there was great personal risk in that. It's hard when you look at like, and we'll talk about, I'm sure, Pharrell and Virgil Abloh, all these people today, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it's hard to see them taking much risk. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, well, not to run ahead too much, but I was <laughs> actually, one thought that came to my mind that it's funny that Virgil Abloh uh, invoked uh, Duchamp and not Warhol as his quote-unquote lawyer um but we'll we'll, we'll get into that um i like what you read uh, what you wrote uh, i'm gonna quote under the newer holian regime consumers regardless of class or socioeconomic status respond to aesthetic signifiers and the aura that an association association with art confers that of uniqueness distinction and individual creativity precisely what mass production lacks. So it sounds like, you know, we're still in that era where art does retain an aura of, uh, not an aura in, uh, uh, in uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, Walter Benjamin sense, right? Not, not a 
work of art is an art because it's all mass produced, but an aura of prestige. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think also a visual interest. I mean, um, you know, I think that now you see, to use like the example of Warhol, where his foundation is pretty liberal in, you know, offering use of images of his artworks to companies. You could buy everything from like a baby stroller to a Uniqlo t-shirt to a, you know, lighter to, uh, you know, what is not emblazoned with the Warhol artwork <laughs> at this point, you know? And, and it's like, what makes your baby stroller cooler than somebody else's baby stroller? It's, yeah, you you yeah. have like this cool print that has, you know, uh, for those who know, and they know the significance, maybe that, you know, tells people something about you. But more often than not, I think the reason why people buy the Uniqlo t-shirts with artworks on them, it looks cool. It looks more interesting. Uh, than similar mass-produced products without the artwork on it. And, and that's, yeah, I think, yeah. also the root cause of a lot of the uh, artist-brand collaborations as well. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they're pimping out the name like there is no tomorrow. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's go through... Uh, okay, so let's talk about sort of the basic mechanics of like what you're seeing starting happening uh you know in the 80s 90s 2000s now mm -hmm. i mean there is such a convergence of fashion and art and fashion i mean art the art world used to scoff at fashion's attempts to infiltrate it and needless to say i mean that's all that's all gone now um, yeah as far as i can see i think um you know, and, and that's part of the reason why I broke down the book uh, and, and tried to focus on different institutions and different corners of both art and fashion, because I do feel like it's uh, there's really no corner left untouched at this point. Uh, if you think of mm -hmm. like the museum as maybe a more traditional kind of gatekeeper that at least historically has been more conservative when it comes to, you know, allowing like the decorative arts in its hallowed halls or something like that. I think times have really changed. And, you know, you look across uh, you know, the art museum or, uh, you know, it used to be that galleries would discourage their artists from collaborating with brands because it seemed mm -hmm. to somehow degrade their practice or maybe, uh, you know, it would damage their reputation in some way. Like nobody's saying that anymore. If anything, they're encouraging it. Um, so yeah. I, I do think that you're right to say that, okay, those days are over. Yeah. Can you, what, what's the pivotal moment for you? I mean, I have my own, but I want to hear yours first. <laughs> well, I think it's a little bit dependent on where you're, what corner of culture you're talking about. So I think with like the museums, I think the 80s is a really key moment um, where, you know, there's been, there was already under uh, Tom Hoving at the Met, who is the director of the Met uh, in the 60s and 70s. He started working with Diana Vreeland on the Costume Institute shows, and the Diana Vreeland brought in a, a new mass audience to the museum. But Tom Hoving himself was a director who really wanted to make the Met less kind of fusty and elitist and open up the museum to the public and kind of appeal to the public in a new way. He took out radio ads. He put the banners out in front, trying to kind of welcome a much larger audience. And, and he also mm -hmm. kind of started with uh, blockbuster exhibitions. 
Um, so like mm-hmm. King Tut and you know all these shows that had lines yeah, sneaking yeah. around the block. Uh, so you know that was already underway. But I think the '80s is really when you see the privatization of the museum. You have the era of Reagan and Thatcher, and it's just mm-hmm. clear that there's no turning back. That the museum now is going to be more and more oriented towards, you know, getting corporate sponsors, renting out the museum space for corporate events, uh, you know, uh, appealing to a bigger public, but also expanding its premises. Uh, So I think the 80s is a big moment for the museum. I think uh, when I... When I think of like artist brand collaborations and the fashion brands really starting to need art in a new way, I think of the kind of 90s into the early 2000s when you have the luxury conglomerates just kind of absorbing all of these different you know, historic heritage, family-run businesses and trying to kind of recast them as much bigger, uh, much more uh, expansive kind of enterprises mm-hmm. and businesses. Uh, I think that's a really key moment. So for me, I think, you know, it's when luxury brands, uh, we, we start seeing like Louis Vuitton, you know, ad ready to wear. And, you know, all of the brands just start to look like they do the exact same thing. So, you know, Gucci or Prada that started as small leather good companies and then Vuitton that started as like a luggage company. Now they're all doing ready to wear. They're all making sunglasses. Uh, You know, they all have like a perfume, whatever, you know, the the businesses start to look a lot more similar. And so uh, I think as they also become more mass and they have a more mass audience, they need to maintain an image of, rarity, prestige, exclusivity. And I think art offers that to them. And, you know, then we see starting in the early 2000s, the kind of era of collaborations really, uh, you know, pushed by Marc Jacobs and Louis Vuitton. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you in general. And I think it was telling that, you know, I don't, I don't know if it, was, if it was a slip or not, but when you said like you have museums as businesses, I think it's yeah. very telling as yeah. uh, where we are now. And um, yeah, to just like going back to Robert Hughes, he was so vocal about it. Have you seen the Mona Lisa curse? The documentary? Yes. Yes. And uh, it's so good. I always screen it for uh, like a class that I teach. Because, you do? Yeah. I used yeah. to, to, I used to do it too. When I was, <laughs> when I was teaching at Parsons that, and, and it yeah. was like, Oh, the kids like love like it. mind blown right um it's, and yeah it's it's really good and i feel like he's i mean not only is he like so kind of cutting in his critique but um like he really captures i feel like the the whole evolution from the 60s on and really what we've lost um and and that film was what made in like 2008 so we've lost even more since then yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Way more. Uh, and uh, yeah, the the idea yeah, of museum as becoming a form of entertainment, um, mm-hmm. kind of, a, it, it, I agree, that was pivotal. And when p- pivotal was also because, again, like in, in I'm sure, I, I'm sure you've read the, the culture of complaints. I mean, Robert Hughes, like did a fantastic job unpacking the way the Republicans have guttered um, governmental support in the United States um, for art, which is really saddening. But also, you know, I, I hate to sound like that kind of 
American in that way. Like, who needs art? You know, like there's something very like Puritan about the whole thing. You know, like we, we uh, we're gonna leave the aesthetics. Like, we don't need the aesthetics. We have we have the Bible. We have the word. <laughs> Robert yeah, Hughes I mean, was it very is like a. Yeah, I mean, art by definition is non-functional. It's frivolous. It's not, uh, you know, something that anyone needs to live. And so, you know, I think in the U.S., there's always been a very like uh, vexed relationship between like the government and the idea that the government should be funding the arts. I think also the image of the art, uh, the arts as elitist, and, and that's yeah. like a whole topic that I'd love to go into more. I, I think that we've also seen the kind of death of the idea of elitism and it's just been so thoroughly yes. rejected by our culture. And I, I have a lot of thoughts on this and I think the book, um, you know, maybe starts to kind of address this, but I think it's a much mm -hmm. bigger topic that really goes beyond what the book covers. But, you know, we live in an age where I think for a number of reasons, elitism has, uh, been, you know, so vilified. It's like such a dirty yeah. word. Um, and even institutions themselves, like museums, I think, are, really yeah. question their own role as like gatekeepers or tastemakers. Mm -hmm. um, and the rejection of kind of quote unquote elite taste has opened up the museum in particular for, you know, what, what you could very generously call like the democratization of culture. Although I would mm -hmm. argue that it is not in fact a democratization of culture, but certainly a oh, new no. kind of culture has entered yeah. the museum. And, and that has been something that we've seen really accelerate in recent years. And, and, and one kind of, you know, one example of that is the fashion exhibition where, um, yeah. you know, they, these are, these rank among the most popular exhibitions mm -hmm. at major museums. So like the Met's yeah. most popular exhibitions or the V&A's most popular ex exhibitions. These are all fashion shows at this point. Yeah. I love how we're actively digging our own grave as a culture. It's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I'm, I love being called elitist. I'm so, I'm just like, thank you. That's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, people are so shocked. Like, they just, they just, they just don't get it. Like, there, there isn't even a point of departure for a lot of people today to understand you know that elitism that's based on meritocracy like that, that's a good thing you know everything is so totally. going downwards to the basic lows like you know basic common denominator um and so we are actively you know actively sort of fighting against it and i think that's what robert hughes saw and now it's like all over. I mean, look at these shows. Like the, I always like all these like immersive art experiences <laughs> that are now popping up. You know, immersive Monet, the Lilies. You know, immersive uh, Van Gogh, which are obviously purely commercial plays. And I always want to come up to like people in line and ask them like. Don't you think a Van Gogh painting is an immersive experience in itself? Don't you think a Monet, like if you've sat in front of Monet Lilies at the MoMA, you can't tell me that is not an immersive experience. Um, you know, but obviously, and you talk about it in your book, that's not how masses consume art. And I keep going to Hughes because I just love his writing so much. He says about 
you know, that pivotal to him Mona Lisa exhibit at the Met, where he says that the people who have visited the exhibit, they came not in order to see the Mona Lisa, but in order to have seen it. Hmm. And, and of course, now it's even more extreme, right? Because you have your selfie in front of the painting. You oh, never yeah. even that was just what you it. say. Like, yeah, I love what you wrote that, you know, art has just become a selfies background. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, you also look at like, look at all the however many past years of Louis Vuitton ads that are taken in front of, you know, exactly the Mona Lisa water lilies that Lea Seydoux ad where she's at the Musée de l'Orangerie and, you know, the it's the Mona, the water lilies are the backdrop. It's the backdrop to an ad. It's the backdrop to a selfie. It's, it is becoming something kind of like putting the Warhol print on a baby stroller. It's like something that has certain aesthetic qualities and connotations that can just be deployed in any kind of situation for any kind of use. And it adds something. But, you know, at some point, when does it stop adding something? When you have your you know, a water bottle and your baby stroller and you have your toilet paper with a Warhol print, when does it stop adding anything? And and I think yeah. we are maybe getting to a point where, um, yeah, there's... It, oh, it's I think we're so way long past that point. <laughs> I, yeah. I think we're not, Yeah. And I mean, there's a word well, for this, Well, consumers right? keep I, buying it, right? Consumers yeah, keep yeah, buying yeah. it. But at yeah, some yeah. point, it, it's so thoroughly degraded that, you know, yeah. maybe people even stop buying it. Yeah. And there used to be a word for it, right? And the word it was kitsch. And yeah, no one yeah. really uses that anymore. You know, kitsch is degraded <laughs> art you know, because right. so much. And it's actually, it's taken away that Benjaminian aura of the artwork, isn't it? Through constant repetition. Yeah, which um, I think is also very much about the Mona Lisa curse, right? It's the idea that yeah. uh, it, it's become, and, and of course, with the internet, this is now to like the nth degree, which is, you know, something is so widely reproduced and the, and now the image itself is so uh, available to us. Like you can mm. just copy paste the Mona Lisa, you print it on your own t-shirt, you print it on your own mug. Um, yeah. You know, what, what, what kind of aura is left at that point? I yeah. think that's... Uh, you know, a very yeah. fair critique. Um, yeah. But I also want and to say- And it's never love... really the image, right? It's never really the right image because if you Google image search for Mona Lisa, you're going to get like, depending on how the picture was taken, the resolution mm. on your screen, the way the darkness that you, you never get, like it's never, it's a version of a thing. You never get the the right color. That's a real life color, et cetera. Anyway, we're getting into the nitty gritty of things. Um <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, for me, so I agree with you in the museums 100%, and I agree with you on fashion as well. For me, the pivotal moment was the Mark Jacobs at Louis Vuitton collaborating with Steven Sprouse. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the first successful, commercially successful co collaboration, I think, of luxury mm. fashion and art and then of course it was successful but it wasn't like huge but already the light bulb went on and then when he did the takashi murakami collab that was it like that i mean i think one thing that's so interesting about the steven sprouse is you know supposedly uh mark jacobs was told like he could do anything he wanted just don't touch the logo 
And of mm-hmm. course he did, right? The Stephen Sprouse was like this graffiti scrawl that said Louis Vuitton on it. And I think at that point too, maybe was the beginning of an evolution within the kind of corporate body itself. That's like, well, what is even Louis Vuitton? The idea that a designer needs to always be referencing history or kind of like evoking the essence of the brand or something like no, Louis Vuitton can be anything. Like, yeah, what yeah. is Louis Vuitton? That's exactly even? what they maintain. That's exactly what they maintain. They're like, you, because when they hired, hired Virgil Abloh, uh, was Michael Burke, I think, who was the CEO of Louis Vuitton at the time, he was like, mm-hmm. well, Louis Vuitton was never about like, uh, like, aristocratic like high bourgeois luxury consumption i was like what (laughs) are you like are you really saying that because that's exactly what it is he was like no it's it's all about aspirational consumption it's all about democratization of fashion i'm like that is the opposite what louis vuitton has stood for in the preceding 150 years or whatever there's so many contradictions i mean i feel like i always end up like singling out louis vuitton somehow but i do feel like it, there's just so much to say well that's because they're the main offender yeah. yeah. And I think they, but they're also kind of the canary in the coal mine, right? Like, I mean, they're the main offender, but they're, they also are. And I think someone like Virgil and now Pharrell, like they did reshape fashion and, and things are kind of changing uh, with them leading the way. I, I would say, I don't know if you agree with that, but um, yeah, I mean, it, I think also mm-hmm. another key moment is like when Louis Vuitton became like the first 20 a billion euro company, right? It's like even more apparent that if they want to continue the rate of growth that they've experienced in recent years, like they can't just be just selling more and more and more handbags or wallets or whatever. Like they they are, I think around that time too is when Bernard Arnault started referring to Louis Vuitton as a cultural brand. It's like, we're not a fashion brand, we're a cultural brand. Right. And, um, you know, I do think that this is like another point of inflection that we're in now. Like even since the book came out uh, in 2023, I feel like there's like even more to suggest that this evolution is continuing and it's even maybe going even further than what I uh, wrote about in the book. Yeah. yeah. So second edition is coming. So that would be <laughs> <laughs> um, did you go for me? Another inflection oh. point was. Uh, and I don't know if you went to see that, but the Takashi Murakami exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum, I want to say was like Mm -hmm. 2006 maybe. Mm -hmm. And it was complete with the Louis Vuitton store at the museum. And they had two Louis Vuitton bags in the exhibit as artworks amongst uh, Takashi Murakami's art. And they did this absolutely appalling pop-up for mm. VIPs elite. I don't know if you remember it. And they made it look like a Canal Street stall, but mm. they were selling genuine Louis Vuitton bags mm. and putting them in these like black plastic bags you used to get on Canal Street for these like fucking millionaires. And it was just so... The whole thing was so crass and so vulgar. And to their credit, like some fashion journalists pushed back, like Ling Yeager wrote an amazing article. She just blasted it out of the water. The whole thing, you know, the pop-up, the exhibit, in vogue, by the way. No, no, Mm. sorry. 
it, it, she was still in the village voice. Yeah, village she, voice, this would yeah. never happen in Vogue. Uh, but <laughs> this would never happen anywhere today. Yeah. You know, yeah. only what, 15 years later? Yeah. Not nearly. Like, no fashion journalist today would dare write anything. So, why, why, why is that, do you think, Eugene? Why would they not dare? Because the corporations are so powerful. Uh, because they control the fashion media and there's no way they could, um, and they're so also so incorrect. And that's, that's another topic for discussion. They become so sensitive, these corporations to their image Mm -hmm. is that like any hint of criticism, they just clamp down on, uh, Their PR machines are so powerful. They are actively closing down avenues to any kind of intellectual discourse. Uh, and fashion, you know, we can have intellectual discourse in fashion. It's not like it's not close to that. Uh, but they're so crass in their pursuit of profit and uh, they're so sensitive to the image. And it used to not be like that. You know, like John Fairchild at Women's Wear Daily, he would get into these like blowout matches with Pierre Berger, you know, if Saint Laurent's business partner. And if Saint Laurent would pull advertising for a year and John Fairchild would be like, well, screw you. I don't care. You know, this is my publication. You know, no one in a million years would have done that. So like that, Although, that's, I mean, I... that's all over. I do feel like that that's also telling, right? Because I feel like so much of the value now is dependent on image. Like it, it does, I think, just reveal how little emphasis or how there's like less and less emphasis on product and more and more on image and how yes. the whole kind of way that value is being generated is image. Um, exactly. It's not through it's product. A, it's some like generic, <sighs> no one's selling product anymore. No, no one is advertising a product. What they're advertising is a brand, you know, and what they try, yeah. I think what they're trying to develop is some kind of a nebulous brand awareness. So next time your average American housewife is on her only trip to Paris and she wants to buy a bag to treat herself. She'll be like, oh, well, Louis Vuitton, right? So it, it's, it's that, you know, it, it's sure. that like back of the brain generic response uh, because that's the market. You know, Louis Vuitton cannot be a $20 billion brand without that customer. Sure. It's just no Definitely. way. Although I wonder like, um, you know, on one hand, I think like when I look at Louis Vuitton, the their foundation in Paris, I think it's very much about the kind of like, you know, first among equals, blue chip, like the most prestigious brand, the one that like any, you know, you you go, you pull like Americans or something and like people in the Midwest, like they know Louis Vuitton more than they know Balenciaga or like whatever, right? Like they mm-hmm. know Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton also is like synonymous with a certain kind of like high status, kind of chic, elegant, unassailable, like, or um, yeah, like just totally... Um, just synonymous with luxury in a way that mm-hmm. has kind of mass market resonance. But then, yeah. you know, like you pointed out, I also think it's kind of interesting how now also part of this like brand identity is also democratization. It is about kind of pushing up against the elitism of, um, you know, of high fashion. And, and I think mm-hmm. that like the brand somehow is trying to balance those two at the same time, which I find interesting. 
Yeah. Well, the question here is, what do we gain by so-called democratization? Like, what does art gain and what does fashion gain except new audience and commercial success? Because I would be all, I am all for the democratization when the values of art or the values of let's say designer fashion the cultural values are transferred to more and more people i would love that i mean there's nothing mm. more that i would love where um and and i think you conclude with that I, you have i mean your last paragraph is like an, a, a really beautiful paragraph and well i might as well quote it now uh because what you write is art that fails the test of fashionability is increasingly avoided along with art that cannot win corporate support. There is little place for art that alienates the public, lacks visual impact, or challenges the political or economic order. Brands have no use for such art, and traditional art institutions operating more like businesses each year find themselves driven by similar calculations. Companies cannot afford to discomfort or offend consumers. What does art become when it can't eat either? And that, that to me is very telling because mm. it, at least like the art that I fell in love will, with, you know, has a lot of uh, values that stand in opposition to an established uh, societal order, established political order, established economic order. And that art spoke of other possibilities. Uh, and maybe also I'm influenced a bit. It's all coming back to me because I'm, I'm rereading uh, One Dimensional Man right mm. now by Herbert Marcuse. And that's what he talks about. You know, art at its best gives you a vision, a possibility of another world order, of a set of oppositional values. Uh, at the baseline, it's art that makes you think. It is art that makes you think, you know. And in order for, for art to make us think, I think a lot of time it has to be uncomfortable. It has to cause discomfort. It has to cause you, take you out of your comfort zone and because that's how thinking works, I think also a lot of, you know, this sort of dialectical mode of truth discovery, um, we're like, I don't understand this. What does that mean? Instead of, I don't understand this. This is elitist. I'm done. Like, I'm gone. You know, I'm, I'm going back into my shelf. I don't want to learn anything. Uh, I don't want to... Uh, think about this anymore and i think where we at with i think you're absolutely right where we at with the art that is champion i mean look at louis vuitton foundation's uh exhibits for the most part you know like uh uh you, you know uh basquiat warhol right like very sort of popular artists who if they had a message, and I think they both had a message, like that's all totally gone. There's some kind of like what you say, like a nebulous affiliation with that, some kind of a nebulous prestige, coolness, etc. 
but nothing really you know there's no thinking involved and and that's <laughs> well, that was a very long rant about sort of democratization of anything. Well, I think uh, the Louis van Gaal Foundation is interesting because, like, I mean, again, I, I try and talk about this in the book, too. On one hand, like, they're putting a lot of money into their exhibitions at a time when most European art institutions have seen their funding cut and they've had to pull back their ambitions. So they're doing things that, like, no public museum in Europe and, and probably in the United States either would do. I think um, if you look at their current show, the Mark Rothko show, I mean, that was yeah. an enormously expensive show to put on. If you look at their Basquiat show, I mean, like... That was if you crazy. Just think I of, went to that. I went to that. If you just think yeah. of the values of those artworks and the insurance and shipping costs, like no public museum. And, and in yeah. the U.S., obviously, when I say public museum, I mean, these are basically private institutions, but that are kind of presenting in a public-facing way... Um, in a way that's analogous to public museums in mm -hmm. Europe that are actually funded by or mostly funded or largely funded by the government. Um, yeah, I mean, these are institutions that have been really under attack since 2008 and has seen their funding and, and have had to really justify um you know, their expenses and, you know, they would never be able to do it. I mean, this is a kind of luxury. It's an extravagance to put on these shows yes. that are extraordinarily expensive, but it is also, it's hard to say, you know, if you think from like, you know, my own art historian perspective or something, it's hard to say like, oh, this is a bad thing. I think mm -hmm. I'm happy these shows are being put together. I'm happy that someone's paying for it. But um, on the other hand, it's, you know, it's obviously part of their branding exercise and the fact that nobody else can put on these types of shows, they're just far too costly means that I think Louis Vuitton has benefited greatly from the foundation. It's one of the most visited museums in Paris, which is one of the most, you know, has like the highest amount of cultural tourism of, you know, yeah. Um, almost anywhere in the world. So, um, you know, I think the foundation has been very successful as a branding exercise and is maintaining a, a kind of image in people's minds. Um, mm -hmm. And art is yeah, a good yeah. vehicle from their perspective to do this. And it's no surprise that they've shot a number of their advertising campaigns at the foundation. So it's mm -hmm. literally providing the backdrop to their commercial activities, um, even though, you know, in the case of, uh, the show before the um, Mark Rothko show was the Monet um, Joan Mitchell show, which was also critically acclaimed and people, you know, were really happy to see it. Um, and that show, you know, the Joan Mitchell Foundation basically said, no, you can't reproduce uh, the images in the background for an advertisement. And, you know, Louis Vuitton did it anyway, and they obviously did it knowingly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking to go that because apparently the Mark Rothko exhibit, they even reconstructed the, the church, the Mark Rothko church, mm. which is mind blowing. And I was going to go while I was in Paris now. And then I thought like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm sorry. I just can't. <laughs> like, um, I couldn't do it. It's a kind of, yeah, these foundations, I, I guess what the kids called a flex. Um, uh, but it's like we're in the, they're the new Medici. Like we, we're, we're well, back exactly to the Renaissance like the age <laughs> of uh, private patronage on an unprecedented scale. Yeah. Or it's the new Gilded Age, if you want to, if you want to uh, call it that, though, I would rather them put a library in every town. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, did, yeah. Uh, instead of, there's the real branded. democratization, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I was also curious. Well, we're going in reverse order of your book, but that's fine. Um, but <laughs> well, that's just fine. on the point I, of the new Medici, I will say this, which is another thing that I thought a lot about um, in writing that chapter in particular, talking about these luxury brand foundations. You know, like we've also seen the decimation of the public sphere, and um, yes. You know, and and so it has opened up this like gap where private actors like these luxury conglomerates can kind of come in and, and play that role. And, you know, I also think in some weird way, like maybe our whole conception of like culture as like a public good is historically specific, um, you know, before the, you know, you have the the Italian Renaissance and the Medici, but, you know, a whole long history of royal patrons and, uh, you know, merchants and, you know, these have always been the kind of mm -hmm. patrons of culture, the idea that there would actually be a museum funded by the public for the public that would be kind of conceived of as a public good, a kind of shared uh, cultural heritage. I think maybe, you know, maybe that actually was a kind of moment, a finite moment. And we're, we're looking now back on the end of that moment, because mm -hmm. certainly at this point, uh, as much as I would like to believe that somewhere in the world, somebody's going to say, no, this is a real priority. It seems like it's not just the U.S. anymore, but um, almost everywhere. The idea of culture as being, um, you know, funded primarily by the public, uh, for the public as a kind of public good in the way, in the same way as any other kind of like public infrastructure. I, I don't know that uh, I'm so optimistic about that at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I, I hope so, I hope that would that we don't bring any other you know practices from the Renaissance era because you know I don't know how good those were. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that it's happening in France because France is so you know you could conceive of France as the last bastion of that view that culture is a public good. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's part of. The con it's such a part of the country's heritage and that's all like being upended yeah. now. Um, well, I think it is. I mean, talk about like the image of France or the brand of France. Of course, culture is hugely important to their economy and they still spend a lot more than, you know, many other countries, including countries in Europe on culture. Um, but, you know, I think it's telling another eye-opening moment for me was the whole fiasco around Notre Dame and you know, Pinot, Arnaud, this kind of like bidding mm -hmm. war almost on who could spend the most yeah. to uh, help with the reconstruction. And yeah, um, yeah. It, it does I seem like it's even called, in France. I believe it's called dick waving in, in, uh, in the colloquial. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that was, I mean, yeah, that was so obvious and kind of pathetic a lot of people called did call it out uh but at the end of the day again it's hard to argue right they gave a lot of money and but right. oh another point that you make that's a very good point and that must be brought up absolutely how much of that money was tax-free right right and, you know, I think it was Pinot's advisor was, uh, who himself was a French politician before becoming Pinot's advisor, uh, arguing that, you know, they should be getting, you know, a 90% tax break for this money because it was just so generous. And, you know, yeah, there's, there's all these contradictions. Um, yeah. that, and, I, and that I think is important. I think it's important to stress because the narrative they craft 
is, oh, we're not getting anything in return. This is just, we're just nice people with, you know, notions of noblesse oblige, uh, where in reality they are, they are getting huge tax breaks. Yeah. Uh, and not to say, of course, how much it does for the branding, even though that's hard to calculate, but absolutely. And you've seen in Italy, too, I think a lot, um, I mean, one thing that people may not be aware of is just how much more tax breaks are available to these companies since 2008 as a a way to compensate for, you know, declining public funds for arts and culture. So in Italy, where there's a huge amount of need for, you know, um, maintaining cultural heritage and and historic sites and things like that, uh, there's been a lot of instances of, you know, Italian brands in particular kind of stepping up, but also, uh, you know, like you have Fendi paying to restore the Trevi Fountain and then holding a show, you know, that mm-hmm. was kind of one of the conditions. So, you know, I think there there is a way in which it seems like, oh, what, what generosity, what, what extraordinary civic mindedness. And of course, you know, that's maybe one part of it, but certainly not the only part. Yeah, for sure. The public still pays, but in a bleak way. Well, listen, maybe it's better than in America, we just build a stadium, right? And give tax breaks. So, you know, who knows what's better, <laughs> right? Um, so I another interesting point I thought uh, you mentioned is that rise of these mega galleries. And I thought uh, that was also very relevant because people like Larry Gagosian has have become as powerful, if not power, more powerful than some museums. Like it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. I was in London uh, in 2022, and there was a Lucien Freud exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery, and there was a Lucien Freud Francis Bacon because you know the two were friends and. Uh, uh, drinking competitors, I guess. Uh, and the Larry Gagosin exhibit was better. I was like, I-, I hate to say it, but the quality of work he was able to source was way better than what I saw at the National Portrait Gallery. And it was kind of, that was also like in my mind, kind of a shocking mm. Pivotal yeah. moment or was like, wow, this guy is more powerful than the National Portrait Gallery. I mean, for people who haven't been following the art world or the gallery world very closely, they might be surprised to see that, you know, like if you look at some major commercial galleries, their square footage is actually bigger than major museums. Um, you know, they they maintain these museum-sized spaces. They also are hiring curators from top museums, from, you know, the most prestigious museums in the world. And they often have shows like Gagosian is famous for this, having shows where almost all the works are on loan and on loan from private collections. Yes, but also from public museums. So they actually will get loans from MoMA to have in their commercial show where maybe only one or two things will be for sale. And the scholarship, the catalog, everything surrounding the sale is at the very highest level. It's not like this is just like some commercial thing. It's a very serious scholarly thing. But of course, it's all in the interest of selling at the end of the day, mm-hmm. both burnishing the Gagosian brand, but also, you know, there will be a few things for sale and probably those things will be very expensive. And, you know, that's the reason um, behind yeah, all of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess uh, we can go backwards and talk about sort of the first chapter. Um, 
first part of your book, which is people, and you you spend quite a bit of time on the uh, Ralph Simons Sterling Ruby relationship and collaborations. Can you tell me why you decided to give like a substantial weight? Uh, to that relationship? Yeah. Um, well, I found this to be one of the more interesting, you know, a lot of the collaborations that we see are kind of one-offs and they are, even if they're called collaborations, they're often like commissions, right? Even the Murakami, Murakami has talked about this very explicitly, like, you know, it's like Mark Jacobs calling him up or emailing him and saying, hey, will you do this? And then Murakami sending Mark Jacob images and Mark Jacobs is saying, oh, I like this color. I don't like this color. I like this image. I don't like this image. And so like effectively the brand is playing the role of patron and and kind of, you know, commissioning the artist to make something um, for them. Uh, and the brand basically is controlling the, the product, the output of that relationship. One thing I found interesting about Mark Jacobs, uh, sorry, Raf Simmons and Sterling Ruby is that I think they both, through their collaborations, have really aspired to something different. And they've spoken explicitly about how they wanted to go uh, in a different direction from like the Marc Jacobs, Louis Vuitton collaborations model. They wanted to try and do something different, which they have called like a real Bauhaus effort. You know, the idea mm -hmm. being that with the Bauhaus, you know, there wasn't a hierarchy between the fine arts and the decorative arts, that there was like a real exchange and, and kind of a way that uh, all of these different art forms and, um, you know, kinds of creative production could be in dialogue with one another. So I think that was their mm -hmm. aspiration. I also think it's interesting that Sterling Ruby, who, you know, uh, really became like a kind of market darling in the art world in the mid 2000s has seen like this total different direction in his career where he's co still considered to be a real like A-list artist represented by mm -hmm. the biggest galleries in the world. His work is extremely expensive, but he also has made genuine forays into fashion himself. Um, you know, and and I think he's yeah. interested in fashion and and finds what I found also very interesting, finding a kind of freedom in fashion, whereas we've seen in most cases things flowing in the opposite direction. So there's now so mm -hmm. many fashion designers that have kind of recast themselves as visual artists, everyone from like Helmut Lang, Margiela. I mean, you know, there's just like the list keeps getting longer and longer or even people like Eddie Slaman, who, who left fashion, was doing art for a while, now back in fashion. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of development in the other direction. So I thought, you know, Sterling Ruby seemed interesting to me because this was like a rare instance yeah. of someone from the art world actually being interested in pursuing a kind of side career, side, you know, path as, as yeah. a fashion designer. Yeah. Oh, I should have worn my Sterling Ruby shirt for you, damn it. That would have been great. that would have been so on brand for this podcast. So on brand, uh, yeah. I because I did I did buy one and I did think it was a moment, as we like to say in fashion. Uh, I was there at the Pizziomo in Florence mm. when he did the first presentation, and my, and I must say I really liked it. I yeah, and I was not. I'm familiar with Sterling Ruby's art. I'm not an expert on his art. I'm not like a big fan of his art from what I've seen. Uh, but I thought what he did, there was a freshness to it. And I thought, well, maybe it does take an artist coming to fashion to make something fresh. There was something very 
American in this sort of earthiness, quotidianness, hmm. um, craftsmanship that's not like you know polished, right? But 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 sort of more like crafty, but still done in a very good way. Uh, so I did buy into that. I thought you know I. I did buy something from that limited edition where he signs, mm. you know, how my how many meters of the fabric. So I did buy this one shirt, uh, which I, you know, I never buy at retail, like because the price is insane. But I thought this may or may not go down in posterity, but I'm gonna take the plan. And I also I generally like the garment. And yeah, I, I yeah. think it was very cool. And again, something very American. You know, it's denim, like bleach splattered, like it's a very sort of American thing. Uh no, and I thought, but, you know, coming out of like, because Sterling Ruby obviously was very intimately involved in Ralph Simmons's tenure at Calvin Klein. So that kind of idea of Americana yeah. and the aesthetics of Americana. And like you said, this kind of like, well, and also a very interesting relationship to his art too, because I think this emphasis on like materiality, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting, yeah, the kind yeah, of yeah. parallels um, with his artistic yeah. practice. I thought it was interesting until I heard him speak. Have you ever heard him speak? Yeah. So I listen. Like <laughs> There's the a lot only of people that though, where you're just like, you know, it like it's better just for the work to speak for itself. Yeah, and you know what? As a as a journalist, I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. And I've had arguments, you know, actually with Valerie Steele, like we talked mm. about it. She was like, no, 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 it's completely valid. It's just some people can't articulate in words what they're trying to say with the artwork. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm suspect of that. Like, if you can't say something about the work, like that, have you really thought about it if you can't articulate it? But it, it is a, I agree. It, it, it is a, it is a great topic, but I'll tell you this. I, I did listen to Sterling Ruby on the Susan Mankis podcast with mm. one episode. And I I was like, I am losing brain cells at the speed of light. It's kind of amazing. It, it, it's kind of a talent to yeah. speak for half an hour and say nothing. I'm like, I can't do that. Like, how do you like th these were the most banal anodyne generic <laughs> pronouncements and it was kind of maybe telling going back to what you were saying like is that what we are in art like where is the art that and where are the artists that can provoke as well like when everything is so anodyne yeah so i don't know then i wanted to sell my shirt but i haven't yet <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th I I worry about that. I do think we live in a culture where, you know, the critical apparatus, everybody just wants to, like, applaud and, you know, be like kind of boosterish or celebratory. I mean, you know, you use the term poptimism, which I love, because I think we are in a in a moment where, you know, if you if you raise these kinds of questions, you're like a curmudgeon or killjoy or just mm. like, you know, hater, <laughs> a hater. Exactly. Like such a, you know, awful elitist. Um, but so in a way, like artists, creators, like they're encouraged to be as inoffensive and as mm. anodyne as possible. And to actually say something that people might disagree with is clearly in our culture uh, worse than just saying nothing nobody can take issue with. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I've had this experience recently because I, I, for 
reasons we can get into later, I listened to a bunch of Pharrell interviews and I felt like that. Mm -hmm. I was like, actually the one he did recently with Vogue, which he referenced on a previous podcast was like by far the most interesting, but like some of these interviews, you're just like, are you, are you high? <laughs> like what is going on? Cause he has nothing to say. Mm. He, and if he has something to say, he cannot, he can only say it in private. And what's worse, all the editors who are praising that, they don't like it. Like, they'll tell you in yeah. private that <laughs> this yeah. is this is like lowest common denominator Although, what stuff. is this? It's like, it's like Donald Trump and like every Republican. Nobody can say anything, right? Everybody just has to like get on board. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, what what is similar. it about our culture that like there are certain people that are able to wield this power? Um, that they weren't able to wield in the past. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to draw that parallel too much because obviously that's contentious and like people might disagree with that. But yeah, I would just say that um, there is a, yeah. we, we are in a moment where uh, people are really afraid to speak out for maybe a, mm. a lot of different reasons. And yeah. uh, that's why it's really important that people like you are saying these things and, and saying it from a place of like honesty and, and sincerity. And because you actually care about the state of fashion, I think that's, really important. And actually coming out of writing this book, I, I felt like, you know, where I landed was a much more kind of polemical place. And now I feel like I just need to get the ideas out here, out there, because they're really important to me, actually. Like, we we really need to be more self-questioning and critical about these things. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the art world in particular has really uh, experienced a, a kind of moment of their own poptimism. And nobody really is being that thoughtful i yeah. think about what this actually means for art yeah, yeah i i was gonna i was gonna draw another parallel with donald trump and that's in terms of the level of taste for art but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a whole other podcast <laughs> but i think that's where we are roughly <laughs> well that's also part of why i started in the you know really talking about after warhol and starting really the the narrative in the 80s because i actually feel like so many things about our current moment do date back mm -hmm. to the 80s and 100 uh, percent Obviously, Donald Trump, prime, prime example of that, but also the kind of privatization of the 80s, yeah. the kind of culture of, you know, the aesthetics of affluence um, and excess, I think, uh, you know, but also the idea that good culture, that there's no kind of, um, there, there's not necessarily a problem with culture uh, mm -hmm. being commercial, and, and high culture being commercial and that there can be this kind of dialogue between art and commerce. And I think, you know, on one hand, I, 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 I see the, the kind of potential for art to be more democratic and to art to have a broader audience. Like you were saying, if we can, you know, disseminate the values of art to a broader public, like bring it on. But um, on the other hand, I think, you know, that's not always the way it actually goes down as we've seen. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> I love <laughs> I love how the beginning of the culture of complaint, which is a book everyone should read uh, by Robert Hughes. He he was talking about one Republican senator and he was like, well, his uh, uh, level of taste is uh, less neoliberal and more neolithic. <laughs> I, <was laughs> like, I want to write like that. Um, but I think that's where really we are. In, yeah. Uh, yeah, we need, yeah. In, uh, I want to sort of pivot also to talk about um, 
you know, and I think another major figure we can't not talk about is Virgil Abloh here mm. uh, because he also has come to represent where we are in terms of fashion, in terms of culture, in terms yeah. of art, and the whole intersection, you know, he, really Kanye West too, actually. I mean, if we, if we really start, we, we have to start with Kanye West because Kanye West did popularize certain artists and brought a huge new audience to them. But, but again, I also like, we can get into like, you know, what's the quality of art uh, and then by that also, like, what's the quality of our, uh, you know, corporations like brands like Louis Vuitton, mm. Champion, and like, yeah, of course, they're going to collaborate with Yayoi Kusama. Like, what is there to, you know, is like dots on the back. <laughs> you know what I want to see, Natasha? I want to see Louis Vuitton Anselm Kiefer collab. I want to see what that's going to look like. <laughs> that would be, that, yeah, that's, my, although... that's my next <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, with the collabs, I mean, I think it's always interesting when it's not like an obvious artist. Like I, I found like the Peter Doig Dior collection to be interesting because actually um, there was something that you don't often see, which was, I think, on the artist's part, like a real effort to translate like watercolor into a mohair sweater, play with materials, play with jacquard, like try and take texture that you experience in an artwork and, and translate that into a garment. Um and take themes from artworks and try and reimagine them in fashion. I thought that was actually interesting, but um, yeah, it's a lot easier to take a dot and, you know, polka dots are already a fashion motif. So why not just take the yeah. Yayukusama dots and put it on everything? The last yeah. collaboration I thought was also really telling. There were like 450 items in that collection. <sighs> so tacky. And so, it's do you, like, do you, yeah. do you need to even spend any time on that? It's like, no, just put more dots on things. Like it doesn't even matter no, what it yeah. is. Well, um, and that's the thing. That's the thing. And that's what I, I don't know if you, if you haven't read it, I'll send to you. I, I wrote this article, uh, uh, fashion is not art, it's entertainment. Mm. And that's what I wrote about. Like art demands something other than your money. Like entertainment demands nothing from you except your attention you know just and your money like um and and that's where we're at and i kind of do you feel like yeah summer because you know i i you know she's very old she has we know she's struggled with mental health all her life i feel like she's a victim they're probably like these handlers around her who are putting all this stuff in motion I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to know what's actually going on with that. I mean, I think on one hand, like she came out of that early pop moment in the 60s in New York. Like she was friends with Warhol. Like I think the idea of art being more democratic, I think has always been a part of her practice. So maybe that's like one interpretation. But, uh, you know, I know like both in the art and the fashion press, there was a lot of criticism of that collaboration, just the quality of the items. Like, I don't know that... Like there was really, um, I, I don't know. I think that the, as somebody who's maybe getting older too, like she and her persona, those animatronic figures that were in like shop windows and stuff, maybe like it, it, she felt like it was establishing her persona as like a kind of artist icon. I, I don't know. But um, mm. to me, it kind of seemed like, okay, well, is this peak collaboration? Because I don't know that it could get much bigger than this and maybe that's yeah. a good thing but also like not every artist 
I, I do think there's something unique with Kusama in that, like, yeah, Kiefer, not only would he not do it, but like, what would that even look like? Like Kusama, <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, you know, it's kind of endless. Like you can have, it's, you know, like you can just keep going. Like why stop at yeah. 450 items? Why not a thousand? Like it, you could just keep yeah. going with it. But also telling like, again, these immersive experiences, right? Yeah, Kusama was one of the first because it really lands. And I was looking in that and I thought, okay, so my question for you what kind of thoughts and uh, emotion does that evoke in you? Except the Kusama collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I think that, you know, there you really have like the artist's signature motif as a kind of brand, like it's kind of like the LV logo. And I thought the Jeff Koons collaboration was kind of cheeky in the way that he emblazoned his bags, not only with the LV logo, but he had his own JK logo, which mm. of course is like JK. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think it is kind of the artist as brand and there are artists yeah. that are working in that mode. And so doing a collaboration with Louis Vuitton is the most natural thing. It's yeah. in no way, um, out of step with their artistic practice. I yeah, think yeah. it just felt yeah. like inevitable almost. Yeah. Jeff Koons. We forgot about Jeff Koons. Yeah, the other giant of, uh, you know, the, the, the great intellectual of contemporary art. Someone world. else where like listening to interviews with him will like, yeah, make you question your own perception of reality. Yeah. It's like his choices were either like cult leader or I guess super successful visual artists. Um, yeah, yeah mm, I mean, God. just like kind of these totally anodyne like pronouncements, but also kind of like, I don't know, you get the sense with him that he's, I don't know, there's, there's something that I don't want to dismiss about that because I do actually think that, uh, you know, there's something... Uh, he he is like both like a symptom of our times, but also kind of, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that he has a certain insight, even if it's not a positive like effect on, even if I don't think he's been mm -hmm. a positive effect on culture, I do think there's a certain insight in mm -hmm. his work. But, no, um, I completely understand because I, I think, you know, one defense of people like Warhol, people of Jeff, like Jeff Koons, et cetera, you know, Damien Hirst, like you could say they are actually saying, you know, if art is supposed to say something about the world we live in, they are saying something about the world we live in. They're absolutely. saying that the world we live in is uh, crass, in your face, commercial, and we're just that's the reflection, you know, and you can even spin it if you want as a kind of a criticism. I just don't yeah, think no, it I is, think some people could. have. Sure, you could. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think um, I think that's absolutely right. I do, I do think that, like, I've gotten criticism for this, like, oh, you only focus on, like, the most, like, blue chip artists or the artists that are the most commercially successful. And it's like, well... They're, they all also are some of the most influential. And I'm sure you could make the same criticism about like, oh, only focusing on like luxury, you know, big luxury brands or something. It's like, well, mm -hmm. they're also very influential and they're increasingly kind of setting the agenda. Um, and, yeah. you know, like for people who are coming up, who are students, like this is what they're looking to. This is what they think fashion is or what they think art is. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, let's yeah, let's not get into that history of fashion <laughs> and role models. Well, no, we are going to get into that because we're going to talk about Virgil. So yeah, okay, let's, so let's go let's, back to Virgil because yeah. I feel like this got a little derailed. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on Virgil? Because I feel like he's such a divisive figure. I feel like uh, in my mind, I would say my take is that I mean, I think he really did reshape fashion. I think that he's been incredibly influential, and you know, you can see that as a positive, but I also think people are not often, uh, they don't recognize like the real trade-offs in his version of kind of democratizing fashion. I think that, yes, mm -hmm. on one hand, maybe more people feel like fashion is for them. Maybe they feel like there are fewer barriers to entry and that could be a positive. But he also, I think, has been like the primary exponent of one, uh, you know, um, a lot of people kind of almost disowning the idea of originality in their work or feeling like originality yeah. is not important to creative production. Um, two, I think that, um, you know, being so openly anti-elitist is, you know, there there is something to be said and to critique about the fact that the worlds of art and fashion both have historically been exclusionary, have been condescending, have been pretentious, but like we also need to see the positives, the positive mm -hmm. value that elitism also advanced. And I think we've lost sight of that, just kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater or something that um, yeah. elitism also did have a certain belief in taste, like a belief that taste, uh, you know, matures and grows more sophisticated over time with more effort. And like you said, mm -hmm. I actually find something deeply like meritocratic in that idea. Yes, 100%. like some people are born into a family where they're being brought to museums and brought to the ballet or whatever, and other people are not. But like, you know, I think we've maybe all of us have had some experience of whether it's art or fashion or music or food. The more you try something, the more you listen, like your, your taste develops and changes over time. And like where you started out is not where you end up. And, yeah. uh, you know, to just say that the thing that you start out responding to the thing that you see on Instagram and you like, like, or the thing that you, that immediately has visual impact or is likable is like the best thing. Um, I think is really, mistaken like the value of of culture mm. yeah uh no well i completely agree with you so uh there are quite a few things to unpack here uh first of all yes you know museums are museums for a reason like and anyone can go to one unless they charge an admission fee which is another thing we could talk about like you know in what i love about london is that you just go like you don't you don't have to pay to go into a museum and it used to be in new york as well and and in the Met too still if you're a new york resident you don't have to pay anything uh maybe they need to advertise that better and i feel like they purposely I, obscure that information yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i i think society throws up barriers in more obscure ways um like, well, in America, you know, the whole anti-intellectual streak, anti-elitist streak is actually barrier. They're actually barriers to entry for the poor people to experience culture. It's because of these narratives. And where are they coming from? They're not coming from museums. They're coming from populists. So actually, I think there is more danger in that, you know. And if I bought into that when I came 
to the States, like with nothing, with my family, you know, we probably had a hundred bucks in the uh, rent control department to our name. Like I would have never got myself, but what I had was, and what my parents encouraged, at least my mom, kind of a intellectual curiosity uh, and that those roads are open for you, but you have to make an effort. And I think today no one wants to make an effort. And I think people like Virgil, where the real danger is, they are the avatars of you don't need to make an effort. Uh, yeah, and that yeah. and that is an absolute bullshit narrative. And I wrote about this for High Snobody. I wrote an article called Chances Are You Aren't Gonna Make It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I got actually quite a bit of slack for it. But I said... Uh, I, I was like, you need to think very carefully before you like throw your life savings away at like a line of screen printed T-shirts because just because Virgil made it look easy. You know, he came from a very privileged place because he was a creative director for Kanye West. So that's how he got all the connections yeah. to the higher echelons of culture. And, and and to me, that is the danger. Like I've I've been thinking recently a lot about de-skilling. and mm. we talk about de-skilling in the economy. We talk about automation, uh, outsourcing of like killing like you know generations of craftsmen, and where people like now don't have skills to make. But I think we're also go have gone and still going through a massive cultural de-skilling where where people no longer possess skills of uh critical inquiry of sort of desire uh, of intellectual curiosity uh this sort of again esteem for esteem for skill esteem for craft esteem for mastery and that's what we talk about when we talk about high art you know like a lot of it is yeah masterful and same same with fashion and and so i think that's where the danger for me with virgil ablo is is this kind of idea of you don't need to know much you don't need to too much even though you know virgil was educated you know he had a degree in architecture yeah and, like he, and he had guy. um you know i think he had a very like uh deep knowledge into like you know a lot of different kinds of art forms um which yeah. he appropriated and you know so i think like we started by talking a little bit about you know how virgil would often invoke duchamp and I think it gets a little messy because I think part of the reason why he invoked Duchamp is because Duchamp is really like the beginning of conceptual art and he wasn't making his sculptural objects. He was finding mass produced items, whether it was a shovel or a bike wheel or, um, you know, a bottle rack. And he was recontextualizing it, putting into a kind of gallery or museum context and then calling it art. And, you know, I think that's a lot of the work is about you know, the concept of what is the author and what is an artwork and kind of challenging. Um, and at the time it was extremely radical. And, you know, he was, uh, 
you know, he provoked very strong emotional responses uh, in his fellow artists and the public alike. And, you know, so I think it was a really radical and obviously historically very important kind of move that he was making. But, you know, this you could call this de-skilling, too, that like he wasn't making things. It wasn't he he wasn't a carpenter. He he wasn't you know, he started off as a painter. But, you know, the work that Virgil is clearly referencing is more of this kind of conceptual sculpture. And yeah, so in that sense, does, does that give Virgil cover then to like just take other people's designs and then alter it by, as he says, 3% or, mm-hmm. you know, just take some generic object and put like, a, you know, put some words and quotes on it. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, you know, to me, it's sad to think that like, you know, if you were coming up in the 90s and you were looking and and you were interested in fashion because you were inspired by what sort of the the greats of that moment were doing, like your expectation and your sense of like what fashion is or could be was being conditioned by that. Whereas today, Mm -hmm. like I think a lot of people, their expectation is being conditioned by, you know, Pharrell or by Virgil. And, and that to me, you know, inevitably kind of lowers the, the ceiling of possibility. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. So, uh, two points I want to make. Uh, first, I think uh, Virgil's defense is absolute hogwash, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because what Duchamp did, why it's called conceptual art? Because he built an intellectual conceptual framework around it. And at the time, it really hit because he really was the paragon of that idea that that modernist idea that was already there you know that the kind of art that you see in museums it's sort of it's ossified uh it's bourgeois it's not modern uh and so he was sending up the entire idea of what a museum is uh at the time you know, and then he ended up, as you well know, saying like, you know, I'm an artist just because I say I'm an artist. And actually, I don't need to produce anything. I'm just going to move to New York and play chess at Washington Park. It's enough for me to have ideas in my mind. I don't need to realize them. Right? You know? And uh, I, I absolutely love uh, that. Um, what Federico Fellini was saying, like, I love business people. If it wasn't for them, I would just like sit and make movies in my mind. Cause like, I don't need to realize them. <laughs> I need business people to like kick my ass and be like, come on, we need to make a movie. Um, so, uh, and that's all fine and absolutely valid. And I'm all for it. But of course it had a very short shelf life. Just like a lot of modernist art movements, right? You know, Cubism was, what, two years? Yeah. Uh, And so they were very valid, interesting statements, experiments, but they were short-lived. You know, Duchamp, there there cannot be a Duchamp today, I don't think, because that statement he's made, that is already, that's canon. You know, yeah. so so we have to do something else to to challenge the canon if there is a need for it. I and I think Virgil's output lacks that kind of a conceptual framework, no matter what he says. You know, I don't, I ju- I just don't see it. I don't see it. And another point you made 
is made me think about, you know, when you said, like, look at who the kids must have been looking up uh, to in the 90s, fashion students, and who do they look up today. In And I thought comparison is very important, right? So all you need to do is you put Alexander McQueen and Virgil Abloh next to each other mm-hmm. and look at their work and make your own conclusions. That, yeah. that, that's all I invite people to do. Um, because, you know, I don't actually want to uh, ask you about that too, but, you know, this whole question of is fashion art, and I don't think fashion and art is, I think it's design. But there are moments sometimes where I feel I have witnessed something that an, that art is supposed to do when I look at fashion you know, that invokes that kind of emotion. It makes me think mm-hmm. about a lot of things. And the most telling moment was when I went to see the Alexander McQueen exhibit at the Mad. You know, I came out of that and I thought it would be very hard for me to say that what I just saw is not art. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, agree with that. It, I mean, you know, I I, I I see both sides to the argument. I think uh, I think you've said this or invoked like Rei Kawakubo or someone like that who says like, you know, I'm not an artist, I'm a designer. And, you know, if she says that, then, you know, you should maybe respect that or, or you know, take her at her word. I think um, obviously fashion has a functional quality, which, uh, you know, for some people means that it can't be art for art's sake. It can't maybe achieve like the heights of artistic achievement. For me though, I think you're right. Like I think there are, um, you know, certain designers or certain collections that really, it would be very hard to argue that they're not the equal or maybe even surpassing the kind of achievements um, in, you know, visual art or high art um, at the same moment. So if you look at, I think Alexander McQueen, it's, it's very hard to argue that, you know, he's not, um, you know, at least matching, uh, you know, if you if you think of the emotional reaction, but I think you're right. Also, the kind of intellectual, uh, conceptual side of what he's doing, the uh, the sense of newness of something so kind of idiosyncratic and individual to him, the, the way that he's uh, using, um, you know, like physical objects that exist in the world to sort of somehow... Uh, manifests something that feels very, um, yeah, individual to him and emotional and very much informed by a a very deep kind of understanding of art history and also the history of fashion and also lots of references and allusions. I mean, there's so much to unpack. And Mm -hmm. I think to me, that's a sign of, of great art that there's there's a lot of um, content there. There's a lot of emotional complexity. There's a lot of intellectual ideas. There's, uh, there, he's really doing something. He's, you know, it's it's not something that's easy. It's something that feels yeah. um, very difficult, both in terms of the making of the thing itself, but also in its its own, you know, just its very conception. Yeah, and here's a democratic thing. I mean, talk about McQueen, a son of a taxi driver and a school social worker or teacher uh like from east london working class neighborhood does not get any more democratic than that you know and i think this is one yeah no i'm sorry 
No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think we live in a moment on one hand, there is this like massification of culture, like more people now are aware following museums on Instagram or following designers on Instagram, like more people are consuming art and fashion than ever before. So in, in some way, there is this kind of democratization or massification that has taken place. But on the other hand, I mean, like, you know, you look at, um, you know, I think of like, the history of art, I think of like the abstract expressionists, almost all of whom were like immigrants or working class who had other jobs basically their entire life to support their artistic practice. Uh, you know, I think like you look at the evolution of artists and their socioeconomic status, like a lot of the people now that are coming up both in art and in fashion are coming from relatively privileged backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's exactly. kind of interesting that that's coinciding with this like massification and this commercialization of art and fashion is actually mm -hmm. you think of like some of the most, um, you know, the kind of the most rigorous or the quote unquote most elite like artists or designers of the past. And a lot of them were immigrants. They were, you know, from very working class backgrounds and, you know, part of their passion and part of their kind of like single-minded obsession, why they pursued art or why they pursued fashion was because they, they were so inspired by something that felt so elevated above the reality, the kind of commonplace, the ordinariness mm -hmm. of their lives. And I think that's like something we've lost sight of the fact that like art can be transcendent, that yeah. fashion can be transcendent, yeah. that it can really transcend just like, like sell, sell, sell uh, the things that you see, you know, other people wearing for status reasons or the things that you can just like buy online with just a click. Like there was something mm -hmm. that was, you know, seeking to go beyond, um, yeah, the kind of quotidian. And, and I think we've lost sight of that. 100%. And also, I think what we've lost, again, with this whole narrative of democratization is, again, like I said, okay, what is the purpose of this democratization? What are the values? Yeah, I am all for, like I said, the, like, the, the values of art being transferred and I think what we're seeing now, I think, is you know, what you, you said, like art is, and I'm quoting, art is, in a sense, the ultimate luxury good. It's a cultural commodity. And I do see everything now being treated as an asset class. And you write about it in the book as well. You did like, okay, like these auction houses, now they're selling art, and now they're selling also sneakers, and now they're selling fashion. This... Yeah, it's equalizing, but what is it saying? Like everything is just an asset class and the only thing that drives it is scarcity and status seeking. Uh, so what like what use is art? If that's it's a what very it's is. a very good question. I mean, I think yeah. art always kind of set itself apart from the rest of life, seeing in itself the capacity for uh, challenging the status quo, something you raised earlier, you know, uh, being more kind of transgressive, being subversive, being challenging, you know, not requiring, uh, you know, not being entertainment. So the purpose of art is not to just simply appeal to or to attract or to please or to entertain, you know, the viewer. Yeah. And I think that art, this is what I see as like the ultimate danger in this is that art really starts to see itself differently and see its aims and its objectives differently. And, you know, there is a kind of flattening where now, you know, both like the boundaries between art and fashion, art and entertainment, fashion and music, all of these things are blurring, but it's also like they're maybe also converging and they're starting to see themselves as performing the same function in society. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. The only positive I see from this <laughs> for me personally, <laughs> yeah, the only positive I see today where like when when someone still tries to be like dismissive of fashion, I'll be like, really? Have you been to Chelsea? Nothing makes me feel better than working in fashion than going to see art in Chelsea because <laughs> I'm like this shit is bad okay like don't yeah. tell me that what's don't tell me that like my work is somehow inferior and the people jesus christ like the amount of pretension the amount of uh you know this like uh yeah all this you know this faux attitude to mm-hmm what they're praising like you people are ridiculous like if i want to feel good about working in fashion and all the bullshit i have to deal with all i have to do is look at today's art world and i'm like i'm Mm -hmm. fine well (laughs) i mean look like the art world in many ways like they've you know i think that uh is also very trend oriented right there's now more so than ever before like most of the market and most of the attention even museum exhibitions now skew more and more contemporary we're seeing like the work of living artists now take up more market share and more uh, like market share in terms of our attention. And so, um, you know, of course, like with such, uh, with so much uh, work out there with such a volume of contemporary art, like not all of it is going to stand the test of time. There's a lot of garbage, right? And um, there is this kind of churn and this acceleration that I think does make art look more and more like fashion. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, the fact that the art world has organized itself very in a similar way to fashion, like you have, instead of fashion weeks, you have art fairs and you have biennials and, you know, a kind of similar like global circuit. And I think that that does start to kind of encourage the same kind of production. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think that... um, yeah, this is the danger. I mean, like, I think art, the art world has seen, has learned some of the lessons of fashion and also mm-hmm. in an effort to try and appeal to a broader, more mass public, like has, you know, been seduced by trendiness, glamour, celebrity, um, just yeah. like the rest of our culture. Yeah. And, and in the process, and I think you do mention that in the book, it, it, what it has lost is autonomy. And it is very important for art to be autonomous, autonomous in the sense that it stands apart and on its own from uh, commercial constraints, from political constraints, from cultural constraints, because that's what make it a source of, uh, that's what makes it you know, have have something to say. That's what can make mm. it provocative. That's what can make it oppositional. Um, and almost, like I said, yeah, opening a different, a possibility of a different worldview. And I think that's what's lost. Like, I remember like early going to, I had a friend who was an artist, uh, an acquaintance, and I went to his studio and he was like, yeah, I'm, I was like, what are you working on? He said, and he said, my dealer commissioned 10 nudes for an art fair that's coming mm. out. And I was like, so that is the reason for you producing art? Like, I mean, that, that's it. There is no more, there is no better scenario I can offer you, like, for this, you know, for what we're talking about. So a question for you, Eugene, because I know you've been thinking a lot about postmodernism. I mean, to me, I feel like the idea of art as being autonomous is like very much like a modernist idea. Mm -hmm. 
Um, with postmodernism, if we, you know, live in postmodernism, which I, I think we do, um, you know, is there like a possibility for art being autonomous anymore or like have just um, we collapsed hierarchies so much that the idea of like art standing on a separate plane from everything else, like does that just cease to have any resonance? Um, you know, is it inevitable in postmodernism that art stops being autonomous? I, I think the way postmodernism is set up, yes. Uh, the, the answer used to be in subcultures. That was sort of the final refuge of non-commercial art. Um, and I do like, so my only optimist is my simultaneous, let's say, optimism, pessimism lies with the young. Mm. I think it will have to take a new generation who will opt out of the whole thing and will say, no, there is actually such thing as a soul and uh, <laughs> it's worth um, it's worth paying attention to and it's worth exploring and not everything is about commercial success. But the predominant narrative right now, the, our predominant cultural narrative is commercial success. And as long that cultural narrative is predominant, I don't see how, except the fringes, um, yeah. such art is possible. But here's the problem. Uh, the powers that be, let's say, they have become so powerful yeah. that the fringes are virtually invisible. You know, we talk well, about I know the you're internet. 1% culture. I think that yes. was a really important piece that you wrote um, about the quote-unquote 1% culture because, you know, to me also that says something. We talked a lot about, like, the idea of elitism and how that's been so kind of, like, rejected by culture but, you know, if the few kind of powerful figures that uh, are being, you know, re rewarded with more and more market share and like the whole kind of like celebrity apparatus like keeps amplifying. And of course, over the Internet and social media, there's like more and more amplification of uh, the winners of this, you know, system. So these the, it's kind of a winner takes all system where they are getting more and more successful. And that seems to only be like accelerating and increasing over time. You know, if that's the case, um, like maybe this is just a new elite, but this the values of mm -hmm. this elite are like commercial values. And, you know, I write about op art pop, what I call art pop in the book. And I in that yeah. kind of umbrella, I include people like Virgil Lablow and I think Pharrell would be part of that. I think like artists like Murakami and Cause and Daniel Arsham, mm -hmm. like all of these people that, you know, and Kanye too, like these, these people have all been part of the same network since like 2005, you know, back yeah. when Murakami did Kanye's album cover, then like Cause did Kanye's next album cover. Uh, Virgil has collaborated with Murakami, Pharrell has collaborated with Daniel Arsham and more like, you know, this is all part of the same social milieu. They're all part of the same mm -hmm. mix. But I think more so than any one individual being so important, I think it just represents a new kind of elite that's become predominant yes. in our culture. And, you know, is if we're going to be governed by an elite, would we prefer that one? I think it's worth asking. You know, I think we've kind of just yeah. accepted this uh, under the guise of democratization and mm -hmm. of course, the kind of growth imperative of business and the fact that we all venerate success today without really questioning it. Um, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. We can only uh, with the with democratize the consumer base. We have <laughs> right, not right. democratized the producer base <laughs> on yeah. some level. And um, seeking ever that's... younger audiences, I think that's also why we see so much like juvenile like style and culture, right? Like why we have mm. cause and why we have you know. So it's yeah, it's it yeah, it does yeah. kind of I think speak to like the business imperative as much as anything yeah. else. And here's the thing, like I meet all the time young kids who are bright, interested, intellectually curious, and, and they are lost. They're like, what are we supposed to do? Mm. It, it, like, what are we supposed to do today if that's that's what's everywhere? You know, some also... Uh, like uh, I wrote a manifesto that will soon be published, but I'm really like, we need to start building alternative networks. Mm. And I think it can be done, uh, but they have to be networks because there's strength in numbers. Um, and and I think, yeah, I think that's very important uh, to start building these alternative networks uh, to go around uh, this culture and I and I do think it's possible. You know, the internet simultaneously can be a, a boon to this. You know, because there are now ways to be connected. There are now ways to to gain audience. Um, another thing I think what's detrimental is that the media is mostly interested in this. Um, uh, winner narrative in the narrative of success. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we love failure of when like a celebrity fails and we can laugh at them. Uh, but there really isn't, you know, especially in America, there is this narrative of success and that's what people want to read about. And I'm like, I want to read about all the fair. I want to make a newspaper or a magazine dedicated solely to failure. Like, let's hear all the <laughs> stories of even which we, we even treat failure as all of a sudden failure is like a stumbling block on the way to success. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want to read about failure. It was someone like failed definitively and like had <laughs> to go work end. at a post office. <laughs> this is what we need to talk about. So this, that's it. That's going to be my new magazine. Well, we'd be it's a healthier be culture, failure. right? Like, I think this... Uh, the, the perception that success always surrounds us and that we're the only one who's like privately failing and just desperately trying to be perceived as successful, no matter what we're experiencing internally, has obviously been hugely detrimental to us individually. And uh, yeah, I mean, what I hope really, Eugene, is like the pendulum swings one way. I hope that the pendulum swings the opposite way, that people really start yeah. to want and need something different and new. And, and I think that is our hope. I do too. I do too. And and like I said, you know, the the strength is in building networks with with that type of thinking, uh, and which will inevitably lead to some sort of a production that is based on that type of thinking. So on this uh, optimistic note, we we <laughs> we I think we've gotten as optimistic as we can. <laughs> <laughs> Um, listen, I, I, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on. This has been most stimulating. Uh, everyone, please, uh, if 
pick up Natasha's book. It really is great. It's called uh, Merchants of Style, Art and Fashion After Warhol. As usual, we encourage you to support your local bookstore and not buy it on Amazon. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much. This has been fun. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Styles I Thank you for listening.